To introduce this particular talk, we looked at verses 1 through 11 last week. This week we're going to transition into verses 12 through 31 in Isaiah chapter 40. The opening message of Isaiah 40, though, is a message of comfort, of peace, of security, of redemption. Um, it's, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. It is Yahweh showing up um, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of silence, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of pain, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of doubt. These people of Israel had been um, suffering for quite some time, not knowing if Yahweh would show up, if God would show up. Um, and as you can see, there's glimpses in those first few verses where the people of Israel had all but given up on what he could possibly do. This is a period of um, many years in between the first, the first bits of Isaiah in Isaiah 1 through 39, and then this transition in, in chapter 40. Um, this text here is also offered in the midst of the abandonment created by the exile. We, as 21st century American Christians, don't necessarily understand the dramatic realities of the exile. The fact that Israel had been taken from the land that God had promised them, the place where God, in their mind, dwelled, the place um, that meant their inheritance, that meant their relationship, that meant... Um, and confirmed their very identity as people. The exile dramatically alters that. And we see that in the text, in texts like Psalm 137. And I'll tell you, I'm very tempted to not read all of Psalm 137 to you because it gets pretty ugly towards the end, but we'll see where it goes. Psalm 137 says, By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion's that code word for Jerusalem, that code word for where God dwells. The Israelites had been removed from the land. They're sitting in Babylon outside of their territory, weeping and crying when they remembered what was, what used to be, how things were with the temple and with the sacrifices and with um, the relationship and identity that they had. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion, those old spirituals that got you through. Sing us one of those, if you will. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? See, this tie to the land was very, very, very important for Israel. Um, something that we kind of forget. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did. And here there's this turn of phrase here in the psalm where we go from a lament psalm into something more, uh, where the Israelites are asking for something to happen, something quite dramatic. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That, friends, is intense. That, friends, is not a song that we sing here in church. It's leaning on the everlasting arm. What can keep us from these alarms or the, whatever that phrase is? It's not this moment of lament. It's not this moment of um, vocalizing the pain and the struggle that you're going through. In the psalm here, in Psalm 137 in particular, we see just the, the depth of sorrow and what it meant for Israel to be outside of the land to have been taken into captive by Babylon and taken into a foreign land. Um, it's something that, that we have a, a struggle with. To this cry in, in the intro verses that Laura read, uh, the response of the people 
to this message of hope and comfort and God being that tender shepherd, it's previewed with the response of the I, the unnamed I that we don't necessarily know who it is in verse 6. It says, more or less, this is my paraphrase, what can I say that's going to change their mind? What will they accept? What will they believe in light of this scenario in which you are? What they know, what these people have experienced, what they are living are the rivers of Babylon, so far removed from temple, so far removed from Israel, so far removed from priesthood and land and inheritance. What we've seen over this course of years and years and years is silence and waiting and hoping. What they know is suffering and pain and difficulty. And this leads the exiles to proclaim uh, towards the end of this chapter, I believe it's in verse 27, 26 or 27, they say, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God. No longer are they trusting, faithful Israelites. They're looking around at their circumstances, which is so easy to do, and they say, my way is hidden from the Lord. He doesn't even know what's going on with us. We're sitting by the rivers of Babylon, weeping, lamenting. To preview where I want to go tonight, I think there's a parallel here between the doubt-filled response of the exilic community and us. We talk a lot about restoration. Goodness, it's the name of this church, right? The Restoration Project. Every week we say, we believe that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God is restoring humanity to himself, individuals to each other, and creation to its original design. We believe in restoration. We believe that the gospel does something. We believe that Jesus changes people's lives. But for some of you, that idea of restoration, whether it be spiritual or whether it be physical or whether it be uh, with relationships or whatever, it's noticeably absent. It's completely divorced. You, in other words, are sitting by the rivers of Babylon, hanging your harp, saying, I'm weeping when I remember what used to be or what could be or what these people in this building talk about has no correlation in your life, perhaps. We talk a lot about transformation, but for many of us, the God of transformation is silent. If I had a nickel for every student that told me, I would love to accept Jesus, I would love to, to follow him, but he hasn't said anything to me. The students that sit in their room and pray and wait for God to show up and heal their parents' marriage or wait for them to heal um, the physical ailments of their grandparents or just wait for them not to be tortured and bullied at school, wait for them to not have to deal with a lot of things that they deal with. And here we see that transformation, the God of transformation being silent, being one who's not working in the ways that they think or want, but they're sitting by the rivers of Babylon in silence, in darkness, in pain, and almost as if they've written it off. There's nothing that you can say. There is no hope. There is no comfort. It's as if we are the exilic community. We are the abandoned ones. We are the ones who no longer accept the message, here is your God. In the beginning of Isaiah 40, that's the message. Prepare a way for Yahweh because he's coming back. Make the road nice and clear and smooth. Go to a mountaintop and shout, here is your God. For the exilic community, that's not necessarily something that they could wrap their minds around, and I think that there's a parallel between them and us, even though we're on a totally different side, a different side of the cross and the empty tomb. We're on a totally different side, but still we see these same sorts of moments of pain and suffering and, and difficulty. The writer of Isaiah 40 through 55, um, which we could call second Isaiah or the poet or however you want to define this person, begins to address these concerns in verses 12 and following. These ideas that people have where they're sitting there thinking, this is not working anymore. This is how the author begins to make a case 
that God will in fact comfort, that he's able to comfort, and that he actually will um, comfort. So scholars disagree on this. I've got to sneak this a little bit in here. Uh, scholars disagree on the aim and structure of this section, 12 through 31 in particular. Um, but you could say in very general terms that the author here is attempting to prove that Yahweh can and will act on behalf of his people. My doctoral supervisor, Mr. Dr. the Right Reverend John Goldengay, says this. It's nice to sneak him in, even though he's 3,000 miles away. He concludes that the poet answers the question about Yahweh's power with a fourfold affirmation of it, and then applies the affirmation to the question of Yahweh's commitment. So the way that it's structured is, you guys have doubts, you guys have struggles, you guys have difficulties. I'm going to deal with those one by one almost and prove to you that God is able and willing to meet you where you are. That if you go up to the mountaintops and shout, here is our God, he won't leave you high and dry as you feel as though he has left you high and dry for these many, many years. So we're going to break this down into four sections and then conclude uh, with the last few verses of Isaiah. I'm just going to read through the text here and then give you some, some comments. In Isaiah 40, 12 through 17, it says this, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? This is almost like a Job 38 type of moment where the people are arguing and doubting and, and not believing, and then the word of the Lord comes back, Who are you? Where were you when I did this? It says, Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? What's the answer to these rhetorical questions? In the first bit, yeah, these here, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? Yahweh. What's the answer to these? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Nobody. So some people would say that um, the nobodies here in verses 13 and 14 kind of trump the beginning, and basically that's, that's the answer. Yahweh alone is the one that does these things. There's no one else like him at all in any way, shape, or form. This is a very um, important point to make because at this time it wasn't so much like our culture. Gods were so normal. It just mattered which one did you serve or how many did you serve. So saying something like this was revolutionary at, at the time. Uh, saying that Yahweh is much different than any other God. He goes on to say, and this is the claim that he's making, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. So the first affirmation is, Yahweh is more powerful than the nations. Nobody has anything on Yahweh at all. We could put that into modern day slang if you want. Ain't nobody got nothing on Yahweh. Is that modern day slang? Probably not. Sorry, Josh Hill. Um, it's broken down into two stages. The first is the rhetorical questions of who. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. That's where I really fail to meet the needs of my students, my high school students, when I try to go Urban Dictionary on them. You'll find that that's never a good idea. Never go Urban Dictionary on anyone. All right, so this section, it has a polemical function. That's a big fancy word for basically meaning it's an argument against something. It's an argument against something that is almost accepted as common fact. Okay? So what he's saying here, especially to the Israelites who are sitting by the rivers of Babylon in the midst of pagan worship, in the midst of other rival gods, in the midst of all these things, 
he's bringing out these rhetorical uh, questions here to say Yahweh is not like other gods. Even though you don't feel that, even though you haven't really experienced that, even though you don't believe that anymore, Yahweh creates on his own. This is huge. Yahweh does not need any help or instruction. I'm going to focus in on this idea of creation because in Babylon there's other creation stories. The creation stories are very different from Genesis 1 through 3. Basically, in those creation stories, it's gods either creating together or quite literally killing one another, sprinkling the blood of the gods around, and then watching the humans grow out of the blood of the goddess Tiamat. So here, it's... it's when the poet is saying that Yahweh doesn't need anyone else to help him create things, it's a huge claim that's giving us a a, a bit of the power of of who Yahweh is. And remember, in this scenario, in this context, the Israelite people were sitting there in the midst of pagan gods, in the midst of all these other gods, um, and having this message come through, comfort, says Yahweh. Yahweh is the one that there's no comparison with. Yahweh is the one. Believe in him, trust in him, hope in him. Okay, the second part of this, the second stage would be this tie to the nations because it's all leading to this idea that compared to Yahweh, the nations pose no threat. Understand again the context. These are the people that have taken them out of Israel, that have taken them, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, taken them from their people. Um, So in a very real sense, yeah, they pose a threat. They destroyed my family. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed where God lives. They destroyed these people. So here we see this kind of conflict in terms here, but what the poet is saying is Yahweh, compared to these people, um, is so much greater. The nations are small, and they're trivial, and they're unimportant. At this time, Babylon was the world empire. To say this was a massive claim. Um, Their oppressors, Israel's oppressors, are feeble. Comfort my people. Tell Jerusalem that their hard service is up. Tell them that I will tend them like a a shepherd, that I will hold them close to my chest. Tell them that in the midst of difficulty and suffering and pain, that the nations that oppress them don't got nothing on Yahweh. Remember the context. These people are sitting by the rivers of Babylon, and they're having a difficult time accepting this message of hope and this message of comfort because it totally disagrees with their context. It's a microcosm of what happens in this place, I think, oftentimes. Because again, we talk about Jesus and we talk about restoration and we talk about transformation. And for some of you, it's all you can do to hold on. It's all you can do just to struggle to believe that there's something worth believing in or some hope that you're moving towards or that there's a path that Yahweh is clearing for for himself to come and meet your needs. And the poet's trying to meet those people where they are. The second affirmation is this in verse 18. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. What are you going to compare Yahweh to? The idols that people have made in front of you? The idols of of wood and gold and silver and and whatever else that we have going on. So the second affirmation is Yahweh is more powerful than these images. The draw or the the thing that, that makes people want to worship idols, it makes perfect sense. Even now it makes sense because ideally we want to see something. We want to know that what we're praying to isn't just this, the atmosphere. 
Sometimes it's as though when you pray, your words go up and you're just hoping that they hit somebody's ears, but sometimes it feels so distant. Uh, we want to see something. So like Old Testament Israel, we struggle with this concept of not setting up idols for ourselves. We struggle with this concept of not trying to um, either create an image to express who God is for us or just replace God with the things that we see, the things that we feel, the things that become important to us. What are our modern-day idols or images? Come on, people. Sports. Sports teams. Yes, that did not make my list that you'll see in a moment, but absolutely. It's, it's striking that with sports teams, the way that you conduct yourself um, at a game, even a high school basketball game or a professional game, you know, it's quite distinct than how you behave in a church. Maybe that's a good thing, um, sort of, but there's like this excitement that oftentimes doesn't, doesn't translate. And for some of us, those sports teams are absolutely all-consuming, and they do, in fact, replace who God is. What else? TV? Did you say that? TV? Yeah. Um, maybe more so with the amount of time that we dump into TV. We were joking, Kate and I, the other day, you know, Malcolm Gladwell wrote this book, Outliers, and basically he's saying, in order to be an outlier at something, you have to devote 10,000 hours of your life to it. So I said, well, maybe we're outliers in watching Netflix. <laughs> we devote quite a bit of time to that. And with Arrested Development Season 4 out, I think we'll probably invest a few more hours to that here in the next few days. Um, but yeah, definitely that kind of commitment takes, takes over and replaces God functionally as, as an idol that you serve. Anything else? Mothering. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with Pinterest. Pinterest is like the, the death of mothers. It's the guilt and shame badge that people wear. I can't make a table out of paper clips and cardboard. I can't. It doesn't, it just doesn't look right. I'm a terrible person. Like, yeah, so that kind of idea, but beyond that, yeah, the amount of time that you put into your kids and um, raising them, goodness. How do you even balance that? Because that's a, that's a beautiful thing in and of itself, but Towards the end of the day, I would imagine that mothers and some fathers probably just want to collapse. Kate and I feel that way about our special dog, Porter. <laughs> some days it's just like, I can't, I can't handle him anymore. And like, the other day she was laying face down on the couch and just saying, Porter, stop it, stop it. Like, he's just over there like eating something and she's just laying face down. She blames the pregnancy, but, you know, okay. That was a joke. I'm sorry. She's out of the room. Sorry, honey. I love you. Um, I, I had some easy answers here for modern-day idols or images. Money, sex, power, status. These are the things that usually come up. Um, gosh, it might just be affirmation. It might be wanting to be popular. It might be uh, wanting to be respected in your field. It might be wanting to write a paper that your professor will finally give you an A on or something like that. Or just getting your boss's approval or, goodness, even getting your parents' approval or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse's approval or just things like that can easily replace the drive that we have to please God because we're trying so hard to please these other people. They're not bad motives in and of themselves, but sometimes they can replace um, God. I think there's some other answers, though, that are underlying some of these issues. Legalism in the Christian world has become an idol. Can't sin. 
don't do this, don't do that, got to do this, got to do that, got to read my Bible five times a day for at least 20 minutes per time I sit down to read the Bible. And then if you don't, you just feel guilty about it. Um, oh man, you did this sin and now you're just a terrible person, so you're going to go in your closet and dump the ashes on your head and wear sackcloth. I think people still do have sackcloth that they put on from time to time, um, whether figuratively or literally. Uh, but we have these ideas of, of legalism where you strive to be something and that becomes the thing that you're running after when Jesus so clearly says, that's not what it's about. But we kill ourselves on the idol of becoming perfect or being perfect or eliminating these things that make us human. Politics. This one really isn't true of me. I am a nominal follower of local and national politics, but some people live and breathe and are just so invested in what's going on and Obamacare and this and that and what's going to happen with these laws and that things. And yeah, they're, they're good things to, to focus on. And I think that they're actually tied to your Christian faith. I don't think I'm not going to stand up here and preach about those things necessarily, but I, I don't think that there's this big divide that we're, that we're making um, in a lot of cases. But sometimes the republicanism or the democraticness <laughs> trumps Jesus in a lot of those ways. Certainty. I put it in quotes because I think this one might be difficult for you guys to, to grasp. So many of us have created the idol of certainty and removal of doubt. And um, I don't even know how else to, to phrase that, but it's like you're running after knowing that you're absolutely 100% correct in every area of doctrine, from the biggest things like does God exist to the smallest things of modes of baptism or what really happens to the bread and the juice when you take it. Like those sorts of issues become so all-encompassing that you miss Jesus, you miss loving him, you miss these things in the midst of doctrinal certainty. Peter Rollins wrote a, a good book, I forget the name of it right now, I think it's called The the idol of God, where he's talking about these very issues where we've replaced God and following him with certainty and removing the doubts and removing all these things uh, in our minds. We have these modern-day idols that, that we place as more important than Yahweh, but here uh, the poet keeps saying it's not, it's not how it goes. These idols that you serve, they're made of wood. You chopped the tree down, and a couple chapters later he's talking about, like, you actually chopped the tree down, then carved the idol, then you set it up, then you worship it. You know where it came from. It was in your backyard. It was that tree. You made that, and now you're worshiping it. It doesn't make any sense. He's kind of saying that same idea here, um, but Yahweh is more powerful than these images. He moves on. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned on the, above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. More creation imagery here. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Affirmation number three then is Yahweh is more powerful than rulers. So again, appeal, like I said, is made to creation. Yahweh is the one who sits. Yahweh is the one who stretches. Yahweh spreads. He brings. He reduces. He's doing creation-type things. For the author of Isaiah, though, creation imagery is not 
way then, back then, Garden of Eden creation. It's every day. God is the God who is creating over and over and over and over. Don't take that uber literally where things are starting over, but he's a creating God, not just the one who created, but he's creating continually. Uh, Everything, because of this role of Yahweh as the creator and the creating one, everything submits to his power. This idea here is more than a source of political comfort. Oftentimes when the election goes the wrong way, we hit Facebook and say, God's in control. God has put this person in office and we will trust him. God is the one who has placed this person here and we draw comfort from that. This goes well beyond that though where it's talking about um, this being the very core of God's sovereignty. He's the one who sits above. The one who has stretched out the very heavens. The one who has involved himself in the world not just in placing people in power but maybe even in your very life maybe even in your life as you sit by the rivers of babylon in the midst of darkness and pain and discomfort this is ultimately a message of god's sovereignty where it's not the rulers it's not the ones who took you out of the land and booted you and put you in shackles and led you to babylon god is the one who's over those people Uh, The fourth affirmation here, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal? Picking up the same language as earlier in the chapter, says the Holy One, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these things? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Again, in its context, this one is huge because it's basically saying Yahweh is more powerful than rival gods. In Babylon, uh, we have this idea here, let me skip down to it, that it's a society where astronomy was advanced and astral worship was prominent. So for God to say that he was the one who created the starry host, the one who's over all these things, that's a huge claim, which saying the people that you're worshiping, you've got it all wrong. The things that you're bowing down to in the heavens, you've got it all wrong. I'm actually over them. I've created them. I'm the one who's uh, in charge of those things. All those rival gods that you're running after and following, especially for the exiles who have left Israel and Judah, now in Babylon, beginning to doubt if Yahweh even cares, they probably were giving into following these idols, these other deities that might be more powerful, the ones that if they prayed hard enough to, they could make their life less miserable than it was. So this is a huge claim here, and it's basically saying that Yahweh is the one who's more powerful than these rivals. Your rival gods, the options that you have been presented uh, in Babylon are not worthy of comparison. Who do you compare Yahweh to? Nobody. Who do you compare Yahweh to? Nobody. Advance it a couple, couple years. Who do you compare Jesus to? Nobody. But yet, who have we replaced Jesus with? Netflix, our pets, our jobs, those idols. Perhaps even it goes beyond that where you have begun to entertain, maybe this isn't right. Maybe this isn't working. Maybe the prayers that I've prayed are just going up there and they're not hitting anybody because nobody's there. The words of the poet come through very powerfully. Yahweh is more powerful than all of these things. So this bit in Isaiah is a call to remember, to remember who you are, where you came from, 
uh, what the truth is. It's a call to believe in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of doubt. It's a call to hope, saying, maybe we won't be by the rivers forever. Maybe he really will show up. Maybe there is a path that's being created for him. Maybe he will tend me like a shepherd and hold me close to his chest. Maybe. It concludes in this way. Why do you complain, Jacob? And this is where the author gets really specific. Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Again, these are the claims that these people were probably making in exile. They've been removed from the land, and now they're trying to put the pieces together. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. These verses perhaps have lost most of their meaning because they end up tattooed on a coffee mug or a sweet embroidered sweatshirt with an eagle on it. And we've kind of missed the the significance of, of the claims that are being made here. I'll get to that in a minute. Yahweh is the everlasting God. He's the creator. He's powerful. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's committed, ultimately, committed to you. Even in the midst of relationships that are falling apart, even in the midst of employers that have mistreated you, even in the midst of difficulties with your kids, difficulties with your family, difficulties with your parents, difficulties with your health. He's committed. And it's as though we can ascend to the mountains and say, here is our God, even in the midst of those situations. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Even when you're sitting by the rivers of Babylon, whatever that looks like for you, even when you're in the midst of darkness and pain and suffering, He gives strength to the weary and it increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. This idea of hope here isn't just like this blind blind faith or I'm going to hope and hope it works out. It's like you've had confirmation and affirmation. It's just you have all these things where Yahweh is, is more than the rival gods. He's more than the nations. He's more than the idols that you've created for yourself. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And we've reduced it to a coffee mug. When we, when we take a drink of the lovely fair trade coffee that in, undoubtedly sits inside of this mug, we think as though we're being inspired to reach new heights, to soar on the mountaintops like, like eagles on the wings of, I don't know, something, something. You know, I mean, you get pretty pumped, perhaps. But when you set that thing in its context, they're sitting by the rivers of Babylon praying that God would destroy the infant children of their captors. They're in the midst of an exile that we can't understand that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. I don't want you to miss the fact here that this text about those waiting upon the Lord 
it's almost underlined or implicit that we wait in the midst of difficulty. We wait in the midst of exile. We wait in the midst of death. As Christians, um, you know, a few years advanced from this time, we wait in the hope of Christ and his coming. Hopefully our prayers have shifted a bit where we're not asking that the Lord <laughs> kill people. But I hope that this text here doesn't mute your pain and it doesn't make lament something that's completely foreign. Because I know as certain as I'm standing here that there's people in this room and beyond that are struggling to buy into and believe again and again that Yahweh is greater than whatever it is that you're facing. Not just the rival gods, but the things in your very life that are causing you so much pain. And what's great about this text is it just, it just keeps coming back over and over and over. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. I'm the shepherd. I will tend the flock. I will hold them close to my chest. I will give them strength. Those that wait on me will be renewed. My prayer this evening is that perhaps we begin again to wait. To wait for restoration, whatever that looks like. I wish it always looked like your bills get paid and your house gets fixed and your relationships go back to where they were. Waiting in the midst of transformation and hoping that it will occur, hoping that the things that bind you and hold you back can, can begin to be shed. But I hope that ultimately we wait um, as those confident, as those who aren't just throwing up a hope and hoping that it sticks, but ones who have those evidences and those benchmarks and those moments in life where you can look back and say he was there and he will be here again no matter what it is that you're going through and for those of you that don't have those benchmarks as a community let's create some for them as a people who looks for the broken and the hurting and begins to fill the void be, to be the people that stand on the mountaintop and say, here is your God. He does care. He will tend you. He will hold you close to his chest and he will renew your strength. And I'm going to help him. Hopefully we can be that people too as we search out um, the broken.